How community co-ops can help us to reclaim our cities. Proposition Statement. This essay will extend upon Harvey's 2008 concept of the right to the city by examining how cooperatives can be part of a prefigurative social project which challenges neoliberalist market structures, instead embedding democratic, collaborative and sustainable cultures. Introduction. The right to the city is far more than the individual liberty to access urban resources. It is a right to change ourselves by changing the city. Harvey, 2008. As a Marxist geographer, it is hardly surprising that, Ge that Harvey would propose to take back our cities from the forces that have changed them. Neoliberalist capitalism is based on the constant growth of economies and as part of this growth generates surplus capital. This surplus capital is invariably invested in real estate where it has been part of trends of gentrification and consolidation of power by the elite few in our cities. Harvey, therefore, envisages restoring a right to the city through his critique of capitalism. However, utilising J.K. Gibson Graham's Politics of Possibility Frameworks, this essay attempts to map out what an alternative future could look like through the vehicle of community-owned co-ops. Such cooperatives embed ethical structures, that is, more equitable and stable workplaces and ethical reinvestment of surplus capital. These co-ops also enable the realisation of more just futures through practices of democracy and alternative economies, local supply chains and closed-loop pro food production, enabling degrowth and community skill sharing. Unfortunately, there are both political and economic and economic existential threats that face co-ops and therefore limit the potential viability to replace slash augment the current system. Capitalism and gentrification. Capitalism is described by Sandoval as a system that is by definition based on limitless accumulation, a drive for constant growth, exploitation and competition. One of the characteristic features of the neoliberalist various variant of capitalism that emerged during the 1980s and 1990s was to enable this constant growth through opening up the world to multinationals in search of the cheapest and most exploitable labour forces. Inclu indeed, this was the end product of many free trade deals done to open up trade internationally. Surplus capital is a natural product of capitalism, being the excess of pro profit that growth enables. It is described by Harvey in 2008 as the result of needing to produce surplus product in order to create surplus value, which must then be reinvested in order to continue to generate more value. One of the ways that this surplus capital has been reinvested historically is through real estate. Thus, there is a very strong link between how the spaces of a city are used and capitalism. Harvey, 2008, links processes of creating and investing surplus capital with a growing trend towards gentrification within cities. That is, the pushing out of the poor from cities as the rich slash elite buy up the real estate, generally the case when governments lack the appropriate mechanisms to ensure affordable housing stock. According to the Urban Displacement Project, Australian housing, financial and social policy is tailored towards profit and wealth generation rather than ensuring housing 
affordability for the country's citizens. For instance, there was a growth in luxury apartments sold in the years leading up to March 2020, and these form part of investment portfolios, where they function as a form of surplus capital absorption and were left largely vacant by the owners. This trend has since accelerated with the advent of coronavirus 19, where many tenants have become more vulnerable to eviction, many hospitality venues have closed their doors, and many corporations have made the decision to relinquish the rents of on offices and adopt more hybrid slash remote working configurations for their workers. Meanwhile, chain stores who can absorb the financial hit have stayed open while independently owned enterprises have buckled and closed. According to Harvey, the uptake of buildings by the elite during coronavirus 19 can be seen as an example of disaster capitalism. Coined by Naomi Klein in 2007, disaster capitalism describes a four-decade trend whereby corporate interests have systematically exploited these various forms of crisis to round through policies that enrich the elite by lifting regulations, cutting social spending and forcing large-scale privatisations of the public sphere. According to Adler, those who own and control major enterprises within the cities enjoy a huge disproportionate role in setting government policy. The typical methods employed by these elite to win policy change are through lobbyists, campaign donations, industry groups, foundations and think tanks. Aristotle coined the term oligarchy, today known as plutocracy, which relates to the rule by the rich. The way that the rich in a, in a society can manipulate democratic processes certainly begins to resemble such a dynamic. Fossil fuel companies are one example of those who li- those elite who have the power to help reshape laws in our cities, and these companies enjoy substantial subsidies and assets in the form of unmined oil and coal that would be stranded if governments made the concerted effort to transition off of them or even become more sustainable in their usage. Lucky for these fossil fuel entities, trade has repeatedly been allowed to trump climate, but under no circumstances would climate be permitted to trump trade according to Klein 2014. According to Harvey 2008, there should be no surprise to this as we live, after all, in a world in which the rights of private property and the profit rate trump all other notions of rights. And this includes the right to a clean environment, multi-species rights and the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Straits peoples. In fact, environmental racism is a big feature of how gentrification is spreading through our cities, with many of those who are displaced from minority backgrounds, who are displaced are from minority backgrounds. For example, Sydney's Aboriginal community faces continued marginalisation and the threat of losing their long-term homes, according to Chapel et al. 2021. One of the other consequences of the centralisation of power by the elite within cities is a phenomenon that German political economist Max Weber called the Iron Cage. That is, there becomes a cultural willingness by the general public to accept the decisions and premises of those at the top of bureaucracies, and Weber argues that the effects of this were strengthened by societies being more modern with less individual control over the mechanisms of daily life functioning. Learned helplessness, job losses, vacancy 
vacancies, evictions, crime. These are all the consequences of not having a right to the city, despite that city being increasingly empty that is full of investment properties. Therefore, there is a direct link into the buying up of city space and growing inequalities, and Australia lacks robust pathways for accommodating community voices and in planning decisions. Therefore, a right to the city can only be said to exist for most people if these inequalities and access to democratic voice are properly addressed. Searching for another way. If we accept that capitalism places severe limitations on the policy and cultural options available to achieve a right to the city, we must then ask how to reimagine our city economies into what Sandoval characterises as democratic, socially just and truly sustainable. In answering this question, Harvey calls for the exercise of collective power to reshape the processes of urbanisation, but stops short of imagining what this solution could look like. Where Harvey 2008 critiques capitalism without a suggestion of an alternative, Cornwell 2011 critiques Harvey using J.K. Gibson Graham's Politics of Possibility Frameworks. This framework focuses on the imagination of what new world could come next and hails from a tradition begun by French historian philosopher Michael Foucault to think prefiguratively, that is, where we replace protest against an old system with direct action to create a new one. John Jordan says it best, when we ask how we're going to build a new world, our answer is we don't know, but let's build it together, as cited by Gibson Graham, 2006. The goal here is not to wrest power, but to create autonomous and decentralised zones of counterpower to achieve global coverage without having to create global institutions. Klein has her own imaginations of mass movements that integrates very ambitious ecological goals with equally ambitious social and economic justice goals, which has taken shape as an endorsement of Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal. Adler characterised Klein as seeking a largely decentralised world of cooperatives, serving local rather than global consumers and operating under community plans rather than market incentives. And could cooperatives provide the model for restoring this right to the city, to the common man? Could they be a form of prefigurative politics that can help transition ownership of the city to the many? Naomi Klein, 2014, states a hope that those sectors not governed by the drive for increased yearly profit, including co-ops, would expand their share of overall economic activity. So why should cooperatives be a part of growing the caring economy? To answer these questions, we need to, one, examine where they provide ethical structures and just urban futures to the common man in our cities, and two, answer the question as to whether they are robust enough to have long-term viability. 1A. More ethical structures. What is a co-op? The International Cooperative Alliance defines a cooperative as an autonomous association of persons united voluntarily to meet their common economic, social and cultural needs and aspirations through a jointly owned and democratically controlled enterprise. And how do co-ops embody a more ethical embody more ethical structures? Well, one way is through giving workers at these co-ops more of a right to the city where they have control over and benefit directly from their place of work. 
Traditional capitalist business entails the ownership of worker time and labour hours based on a specific contract. As well, freelance cultural workers form their own micro-businesses, absolving the, the companies contracting them of any responsibility to ensure security benefits and labour rights. As long as the employer is not harsh, unjust or unreasonable, Australia's unfair dismissal laws do not cover these workers. The increasing casualisation of the workforce in addition to the gig economy are trends which externalise the responsibilities an organisation used to take for its employees, sick leave, holiday leave, retirement pensions and so on. Post-pandemic, the work environment itself has been externalised with many workers now operating from home. In contrast to the employee in a capitalist firm, the worker-owner of a co-op occupies and produces the workspace as both owner and manager of her thinking, moving, labouring body. Cornwell, 2011. Such workplaces result in a sense of equality, security, autonomy, freedom and authenticity authenticity at work for the worker owners. These worker owners collaborate in decision making regarding work and each have a voice and choice in choosing their own business hour and rates. Surplus capital is a defining feature of traditional capitalism and features heavily in cityscapes besides, so it is, a natu- it, so it is natural to investigate the role that this capital plays in co-ops. In traditional workplaces, workers are excluded from decisions made regarding the utilisation of surplus capital, this capital being the difference in value of a service commodity and the base cost of its production. Within cooperatives, by contrast, the decision of what to do with surplus capital is made by members, with these members often asking, making sorry, the surprising decision to increase costs, thus shrinking the size of capital. This is because more often... Often, more ethical and expensive decisions are made which prioritise social cultural goals over the purely financial and can sometimes hinder a co-op's capacity to financially sustain itself. These ethical structures have a real impact on the communities within the city that cooperatives and operate within. For example, Rothschild, 2009, found that workers within co-ops have a real interest in supporting their own local communities through job creation and keeping the co-ops for local people and by local people. In fact, many co-ops are actively involved in the upskilling of their surrounding communities. These skills are shared by teachers within the same community and can enhance an individual's capacity to be self-sufficient. As the Boulder Housing Coalition puts it, to learn, to teach, to share, to to communally enrich and collectives' lives instead of buying and selling our skills in a marketplace. Littleton Stores Cooperative, a grocery co-op located within Sydney's Blue Mountains, practices the teaching of in-house workshops for various skills including watercolour painting, basket weaving, cake baking and decorating, sourdough making, vegan cheese making and more. More research is desirable to see how such skill sharing has impacted the surrounding community in their capacity to be self-sufficient and empowered. 1B. More Just Futures More just futures are also a product of co-ops. For example, the very structure of a co-op embodies a dialogue and democratic decision-making by way of voting rights, a flatter governance structure, equal ownership and egalitarian beliefs. This creates a social bond between members that 
that is cooperative in nature, egalitarian decision-making requires that the group is willing to search for common ground through sustained dialogue, according to Rothschild 2016. According to Rothschild 2009, the very act of having access to democracy at work is a positive feedback cycle which enables democratic decision-making to enter other areas of life, lifting expectations and capacity to have voice in many spaces, including the political. However, according to Gargiulio and Barnassi, 1999, such dynamics are not without their problems. Strong solidarity with in-group members can lead to over-embeddedness, parochialism and inertia, stepping, stopping the flow of new ideas into the group, as cited by Mayor and Marty, 2006. It is a feature of grocery co-ops within the Sydney region to practice non-monetary credit systems for their volunteers. For many co-ops, Littleton Stores Co-op, Alfalfa House Community Food Co-op, Blue Mountains Food Co-op, this equates to a 20% discount for all volunteers who donate, donate two hours of their time weekly. Other co-ops, like the Manly Food Co-op, engage in more unconventional credit practices where volunteers can earn energy points in return for three hours work per month, equating to two energy points giving an additional 10% discount. These credit systems are significant as they represent an alternative and under-researched economic system which captures and puts a value on previously free labour, though in nature they are atomized economic an atomised economic structure. Our economy needs to be organised to respect natural limits, and co-ops enable this by localising production. For instance, according to Harvey 2008, capital seeks to lessen the friction of distance, which limits the geographical range within which the capitalists can search for expanded labour supplies, raw materials. However, for environmental catastrophes like climate change to be managed and averted, humans will need to reduce their environmental impact by 80% from 2015 levels, and this can only be achieved with more localised supply chains, according to Adler 2015. Co-ops, like the Littleton Stores food stores cooperative, are dedicated to this degrowth mission by shortening their supply chains and buying local and organically grown produce. Their mission statement on their website alludes to a closed loop focus and promises, we make many of our own products and grow much of our own produce, also supplying other amazing local and Australian producers. In this way, co-ops can become hubs of a grassroots and local economy, restoring the produce created within city spaces to those city dwellers local to it, all the while achieving degrowth aims needed to help save the planet. Three, challenges facing co-ops. Klein envisages a different, a different future as needing to rebuild the public sphere, reverse privatizations, relocalize large parts of economies, scale back overconsumption, bring back long-term planning whilst making central the need to plan our economies based on collective priorities rather than corporate profitability. And cooperatives can appear to be a viable way to begin to create more localised economies that serve people and their right to the city. However, despite the myriad of benefits that a co-op can bring to a city, helping to revive its citizenry's rights, they face some existential threats to their ability to continue to function. The challenges are twofold, political and economic. In Australia, cooperative legislation is a state responsibility, yet there has been a consistent lack of state, let alone federal organisation, regarding and governing cooperatives, according to Patmore 
at all 2021. Beyond the lack of government support or oversight is the question of identity and autonomy if a grassroots co-op were to be created with government support. Lastly, it is disappointing to report that bottom-up participatory democracy does not necessarily invigorate formal or representational democracy. And this is particularly true the more grassroots organisation resisted state influence and assistance. This reveals the limitations in bottom-up approaches to reclaiming the power and potential need for the support and infrastructure of top-down governance structures. Another challenge for co-ops are competitive market pressures, which creates tensions between economic necessity and political goals. For example, there could be a problem whereby the supply chain changes the nature of a co-op, i.e. big business forcing certain standards of behaviour or price fixing. Independence and localization can go some way to bridge these gaps, but the key challenge is that co-ops reproduce the, floor of the flaws of the system they were formed in, and these challenges include resource inequality, precariousness and competition. A co-op's doomed to fail. They've certainly not had a consistent presence in Australian societal, society historically, peaking in the 1890s, 1920s, 1945 to 1951, early 1970s and early 1980s, according to Pat Moore at All 2021. One of the forces that led to their degeneration in 1983 was the floating of the Australian dollar, which gave financial markets increased power over government economic policy and led to business behaviours aimed at profit maximisation, enhancing share value, external investments and competitive investment. As a part of this shift to neoliberalism, many co-ops amalgamated and demutualized as corporations at, were viewed as being more efficient, according to Pat Moore et al. 2021. Despite the problems and contradictions present in co-ops, Sandoval rejects the adoption of a degeneration thesis that dismisses co-ops as doomed to either turn into capitalist enterprises or fail completely. As this thesis does not fully convey the potential of the co-op as an alternative to capitalism. Further, a, challenge, a change to the legislative and economic conditions to be more hospitable to co-op formation and maintenance would surely go a long way in enabling and ensuring co-op survival. Conclusion Current day forces such as capitalism and gentrification have created conditions whereby most of those who live in the city claim no ownership or right to it. This essay has attempted to prefiguratively explore other alternative, one other alternative to capitalist economies by way of community-owned cooperatives. Such co-ops restore rights to workers, distribute their surplus capital into more ethical supply chains, build jobs and skills to the surrounding communities, restore practices and structures of democracy, trial new forms of economies and enable a degrowth agenda with their commitment to locally sourced and short supply chains. However, Despite the myriad benefit represented by co-ops in restoring rights to the city, there are real political and economic existential challenges that threaten the co-op's capacity to survive and have impact, as most of these organisations have little choice but to reproduce the flaws of the system they were formed in in attempting to survive. If these conditions were to change to become more hospitable to co-ops, then they could surely be a part of ushering in a new and fairer world.